Last time on Have You Seen This Man? John Rufo had made some bizarre claims, but some of those boasts about secret Cold War intelligence missions appeared to be checking out. The group or squad I worked with was responsible for catching spies. He even seemed to know the kind of operatives who were trained to slip across a border, unnoticed. I would certainly consider the contacts that he made with Soviets. But if he did leave the country, where did he go? I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? Uh, my name is Linda. I was married to John Rufo. I've been with him for 26 years until he left. All these years later, the one person who thought she knew Rufo the best now isn't sure she really knew him at all. I was left in the dark so long, I really didn't know what was true. But whether she could help find him, or even wanted to, those were bigger questions. And to ask them, we turn again to our senior investigative reporter, Matthew Mosk. I was back in Staten Island with Linda Lauston. A film crew had set up in a house about 15 minutes away from where she lived so I could record an interview with her for an upcoming Hulu series about the Rufo case. ABD, common slate, soft stitch mark. Camera C. With the cameras rolling, I realized there was something I needed to ask her, straight out. Something that had been casting a long shadow over Linda for the past two decades. I should let you answer the question, do you know where John is? No. No, I don't. I want to face him. I'd like to face him. You want him caught? Yeah. Linda is steadfast. All these years later, she wants to see her former husband in handcuffs. And she knows her memories are some of the best clues the U.S. Marshals have to achieve that. Other leads have surfaced, but led nowhere. They tried to follow the money, but got pulled down blind alleys. What they had assembled was a murky portrait of an unusual fugitive, his exotic tale emerging from the shards of information he left behind with her. Some of the most tantalizing clues still were hidden in the hints he dropped like breadcrumbs during those last few days they spent together. The weekend before he left, um, he was acting very strange. That Friday, I had to take my mom to the neurologist. She was having a lot of problems and I was with her. I took off from work and he called me and said, I want to take you to the movies tonight. I said, uh, I'm still here with my mom. It's four o'clock. Just come home. So I came home and we went to the local movie theater. And we saw the siege. This is New York City. We can take it. After sitting through the 1998 Denzel Washington thriller about a hero FBI agent grappling with a terror attack on Brooklyn, 
the two had a simple meal out together at a coffee shop. Out of character, Rufo asked his wife for another date the next night. And he seemed very edgy. I was talking like, you know, I hope after this we just have that simple life that I always wanted with you. Because simple is better. And the next day, we had my parents over as usual and his mom. And uh, he wanted all these favorite Italian delicacies, you know, appetizers. So we went shopping the day before. And um, he went and visited my neighbor, who is... Kathy and Michael, who took me in. Michael's from Italy. And as it turned out, he was asking Michael where his mom lives in Italy, that maybe he can visit her because we're going to take a trip soon. It would be their final night together. Rufo vanished the next day and never said goodbye. That's what really hurt. He said goodbye to other people, in a way. Just in the middle of the night, I know this is kind of personal, but in the middle of the night, he kind of hugged me, and he he couldn't look at me. He buried his face in my neck, and he said something, but I don't remember. I couldn't hear what it was. As Linda recounted those final hours, it was hard not to spot the clues. He kept bringing it up that one place that seemed to captivate him, Italy. Earlier in the year, that was the place he imagined during his flirtations with his stockbroker when he proposed they run away together. It was the one place John Blaha, the former FBI counterintelligence agent, felt sure Rufo would land if ever given the choice. He, as I said to you before, Matthew, he was Italian centric. Everything it seemed to me was about Italy with this. As I spoke with Linda, Italy kept bobbing into view as she tried to recount those fuzzy signals her husband seemed to be sending. I asked if she thought he was tipping off his destination. Only towards the end, towards maybe the last seven months. Because he said to me that I qualify to get an Italian citizenship because my grandfather wasn't naturalized. So he said, you should really look into this. I said, now? Wouldn't that look kind of strange if I applied for Italian citizenship with, you know, you're about to go to trial? So we, he started the process. We wrote a letter. Our neighbor spoke and wrote Italian, sent it to the Italian consulate. But it was a very difficult process to do on your own. You can hire someone to do that for you. And I just, I didn't pursue it. I just said, John, we can't do this now. It doesn't look right. You know, this is crazy. And of course, there was that final cryptic notation that she remembered finding on a scrap of paper in his coat pocket. I found scribble notes in his suit pocket after he went to the last hearing in the closet and it looked like he took the name of these three barbers that he used to go to since he was a teenager and uh, one of them moved to Italy The marshals did check this lead. Retired Deputy Barry Bowright remembered 
he had just been at an international conference where he met police from Italy who handled fugitive cases. We network and hey, if you ever need anything, and I and I still had their number, and uh, so we sent a lead through Interpol, and they were one of them was actually I think assigned to Interpol at the time, and um, I contacted him, and he's like, yeah, we have the lead, and, and they followed up on it, and they said it's, there's nothing there. Again, I didn't go do the interview, so I don't know exactly, you know, it's it's uh, it's a little convoluted, you know, to leads going through, you know, to another country. So, um, but they kind of led me to believe that there really was, it's a nothing burger, there's nothing there. But was this really a nothing burger? I decided to try and learn more myself. The barbershop had shut down years earlier, but it looked like one of the three brothers, Giuseppe Berardi, had indeed returned to Italy while another, Michael Berardi, still lived in Queens. So one brisk winter day, my colleague Alex Hosenball and I went to see if we could talk to him. We found ourselves on a quintessential outer borough block of tightly packed homes and duplexes, a short walk from the Rigo Park neighborhood where the Rufos once lived. Do you know if it's the top one or the bottom one? I climbed the steps and stood under a corrugated metal awning with my microphone on. And I peered into a side entrance for an upstairs unit. All right, we ring the bell. It says Berardi on the uh, mailbox. A woman spotted me from inside a large picture window. Oh, Oh, there's a lady right there. Excuse me. I'm looking for Mr. Berardi. Hello. Yeah. Hi, are you Mr. Berardi? Yeah, what about it? One of the toughest aspects of an investigation that runs this long is grappling with the possibility that somewhere along the way, a key detail was missed. I asked Barry, one of the original investigators on the case, about that possibility. Is there value in them going back over the work you did to see if there's something that you missed or some piece of information that is here now that could fill in a blank from a tip that came in years and years ago? There's a lot of stuff that we just weren't able to do because of technology before Mm -hmm. that they can do now. And that's kind of, before I retired, that's kind of the direction I was trying to push the investigation is, hey, look, there's a lot of stuff that we didn't have the capability to do back then that now you can do. Like what kind of Uh, thing? He mentioned facial recognition, which is still maturing into a robust investigative tool. And DNA, which was first used by police in the 1980s and took center stage in the mid-90s during the trial of O.J. Simpson. That high-profile use of DNA during this sensational trial came just a few years before Rufo's escape. But the technology was not yet being applied to fugitive cases, so no one collected samples from the clothes or personal items Rufo left behind, items that today might let them run his DNA through a genealogy website or crime database. There have to be a, a database that he's actually in, and so he would have have to have been well arrested, and they took his DNA, which didn't happen. 
While forensics have certainly evolved, it might be tougher to contemplate whether a live lead got missed. But that was a question I had to explore as I learned more about a tip that came in years earlier when a private investigator named Bill Kish, who was working for the banks, called to report that Rufo had been spotted gambling at a casino in the Dominican Republic. He had said that um, he thinks John is at a hotel or a casino hotel down in the Dominican Republic. He supposedly had contacts. At, you know, Barry said he forwarded the tip to the U.S. Marshal's office in the Dominican, and they went out to the resort to check. There was somebody there named John Russo, and he was there with his family, and this person was from Canada. And I spoke with the travel agent that actually made the you know, plans for the trip, and she assured me, and she's like, I've known this family for years. That's not John Rufo. His name is John Russo, and it's been that for, you know, long before John Rufo had taken off. So um, they had a, there was a relationship there. So, Bill Kish, the source of the tip, died in 2018. But this old lead was about to be yanked out of the discard pile and placed back on a list that could best be classified as unresolved. Unresolved leads have dogged the Rufo case, with several of them centering on lingering questions about Italy. From day one, Italy has lurked as a tempting place to search for Rufo. Some of the leads that pointed that direction were at best curiosities, like those retirement accounts set up in the names of two people who died in the middle of the last century, both of them Italian. There were also curious comments that Rufo's co-conspirator, Ed Reiners, made during phone calls from prison. At the tone, please say your name. Ed Reiners. Like when Reiners' lawyer asked him if Rufo had any, quote, organized crime involvement. Reiner said Rufo had boasted of an uncle with mob ties. He quote-unquote told me, if he ever has a problem, he has somewhere to go. Barry Bowright had heard the same chatter. It, it came, yeah, there was a lot of theories out there of all these different, and we looked at everything, you know. Barry said he encountered other coincidences, like how Rufo's office just happened to be in the same building as Sparks Restaurant that Midtown Italian steakhouse that found infamy as the grisly scene where mob boss Paul Castellano was executed on the orders of rival boss John Gotti. Bosses, Paul Castellano gunned down on a crowded New York City street. It was said he was the godfather of... Linda still remembers that night. Mom, heard the shooting. Yeah, so we were upstairs. Wow. And later, of course... Rufo found his way to Jeffrey Lichtman, the same lawyer who would represent John Gotti Jr. Do you know how he found Jeffrey Lichtman? No. When I looked him up, I got like, John, he's like a mob lawyer. Why would you hire a mob lawyer? This is like a white collar crime, you know? I was like so suspicious of that. I don't know who recommended him. Would John have had any way to reach out to the mob or know anybody or? No, not that I, I mean, we've never been involved with the mob. I know everybody thinks that, but 
I doubt very much that was part of it. Rufo's other lawyer, Judd Burstein, told me he was the one who handed off the case to Lichtman, and he considers it outright silliness to try and draw any line between Rufo and Lichtman's other clients. Jeff Lichtman would not have been uh, putting John Rufo and John Gotti Jr. together, if only out of fear for John Gotti, out of fear of John Gotti Jr. in case Rufo did something to him. I honestly didn't know if any of these questions was fair. Just because Rufo was from the old neighborhood, that alone means nothing. This is how Burstein put it. He's a, you know, an Italian guy from Brooklyn. I don't know if he was from 18th Avenue, but, you know, there were a lot of wise guys in those days. But on the other hand, you know, it's very hard to follow that up because uh, I don't know how much there's left of the mafia or the guys who were around then. Still, lots of people believe Rufo had help getting away and there were only so many places he could turn for safe passage with the law bearing down on him. So could he have turned to the mafia? To help make sense of that question, I turned to Robert Boyce. He was chief of detectives at the New York Police Department and retired after overseeing the Organized Crime Bureau. Now he's an ABC News consultant. I asked him if the mob would have any interest in someone like Rufo. So if he went to the if he went to organized crime members OC and, and presented what he was doing, of course they would be. And they saw these kind of numbers, which were tremendous. So these, these this was big money and very attractive to them. Money they could lay off in different ways to shell corporations, all kinds of things. They would be attracted to it. Whether he did that remains uh, remains in question right now. What about uh, when, I, I, what about when somebody like him? He's in trouble. He's been arrested. He's been convicted. And he's about to, to face a, a long prison stretch. Is that a time somebody might turn to organized crime for help in, in getting away if he has the means, if he has a lot of money to, to, to back himself up? Sure. You could see him going to someone he knew and saying, I need this, this, and this. I need uh, papers. I need a place to go. I need uh, uh, banks, you know, uh, the ability to use banks in that country and to move money around. But Chief Boyce put all this in the category of rank conjecture. You checked out the relatives that that the marshals had looked at initially to Rufo, and you don't see anything that would suggest a connection. I haven't seen anything yet. Um, but, you know, we'll keep taking a look there. And uh, again, Italian-Americans are special people, they're great Americans. So it's, it's, you hate to say that just because you see a name of Susan, because this criminal did that and just, just besmirch other uh, uh, Italian-Americans. So, I noted that according to Reiners, Rufo had been going around boasting about mob ties. They're confidence people. Him and Reiners were both confidence men. Someone like this, if, he's, if he needs a bluff, in a certain situation, he could pull that out of his hat and yeah. say, well, I'm a connected person. So it doesn't mean they're actually in, in, in true, but uh, it's to be determined right now if there's any kind of OC, OC connection. It doesn't look on the surface that, that it is. I had spent a fair amount of time trying to make sense of these loose threads. And while there seemed to be no way to tie them into a convincing yarn about John Rufo turning in desperation to some wise guys for help, None of that had erased Italy from the map of his possible destinations. One person who I hoped might have some insight about that 
was now staring at me on a windy front porch in Flushing. Oh my goodness. We're doing a story about a man who was a customer. I showed the barber a photo of Rufo. Oh, forget about it. I don't, you know this guy? Hold you're talking on. about John? John Rufo? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that was like 35 years ago. He recognized the photo right away. Yeah, you just say, yeah, no, I know who he is. Yeah, of course I know who he is. Yeah, but uh, what do you want to know? I quickly recounted the story of the business card the one with his brother's name on it. The business card. The, 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 yes, yes, I know about that, right. And magic, magic in, brother. And he's back in Italy, right? Who? Uh, Giuseppe? That's my brother. Your brother. Yeah. So his address and phone number was in John Rufo's right. coat pocket. Right. So I think the question would be, do you think maybe he's somewhere in Italy? Did you? No. And you heard what happened, that he disappeared? He disappeared with money or something? Well, he he stole a lot of he money. He stole money from where he used to work? I was trying to get back to the point of my visit. That paper with the address in Italy. Um, I wonder why he, did he know your brother? Was your brother still? No, he, he was just a customer of the shop, that's I all. Yeah, Michael he, told me he did remember that Rufo had his brother's information. He knew it, he said, because Linda had come to see him. She wanted to know if I knew where her husband was. I said, I don't know. And because he was one of my brother's customers, they thought that maybe he went to Italy. But I, after that, I called my brother and I asked him about it. I said, did, did John come over here? And he said, no, I, I haven't seen him in a long, long time since I left, since I came back to Italy. So I told Michael there was a theory one the U.S. Marshals had been pondering, that perhaps Rufo had fled to Italy. Michael waved me off this. Not Italy at all, he said. I, I believe he moved to South America somewhere. Really? Yeah, that's what I, I think. Just you know. a guess. Yeah, it's just a guess, yeah. yeah. Now there was a woman on the stairs just behind Michael, who was still at the door talking to me. Yeah. How am I going to know? I don't know. It just disappeared. I don't know. Well, that, that's all. I didn't know anything. You know, I didn't, we weren't friends. We didn't, uh, I didn't go by his house and he didn't come by my house. So, we, yeah. I had more questions, but I could see my window to ask them was closing. Michael began to turn to the stairs. I, that's all I know. I don't know anymore. If I knew something, I would tell you. Because <laughs> it's been so many, I don't even know if the guy is still alive. He might be dead. He's be 66 right now. Oh, that's he what he is? Oh, he's still alive. He could be still alive then. Yeah. I, I felt sorry for his wife because when his wife came to see me, right after he disappeared, she said he, he left. They took everything away from us. They took my mother's house. They took my house. They took everybody's, everybody's house. And I'm in the middle of the street with my, I think, I think he, she had a, a baby girl, I think, back then. Yeah, so he said that she left me in the middle of the street. She was mad. It sure sounded like Linda thought he knew more, at least at the time, but that was all I would get. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm coming. All right. Okay, I'm it's sorry. It's so nice meeting you. Thank you so much. All right. Really all appreciate right. it. All right. Bye-bye. I asked Linda what she thought. She told me that over time, her view of that clue had evolved. Early on, Linda believed her husband may have fled to Italy, 
and perhaps had the former barber on a list of contacts, but not anymore. I thought that was too much of a setup. I really believe that was staged, that he knew we would probably look in his pockets. I don't believe he went to Italy. You think that he wanted you to think that? Yeah, and everybody else. How calculating was he? Very. Very. Over time, Linda had come to doubt that image of Rufo in Italy. But the U.S. Marshals, who once gave little credence to that possibility, their views had shifted too. So I think if we had to pick one place in the world John Rufo is, or is frequenting, or has connections to, that's where we would put our money. Um, definitely in Italy, we know he's traveled there. So after a year of waiting for the cloud of COVID to lift, the marshals were about to board a flight to Rome. When we come back. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. I was in the boarding area at Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. Deputy Marshal Chris Luer had left his house at 4 a.m., to expand the hunt for John Rufo across the Atlantic to Italy. I asked Chris to explain 
why he was going. It's like very symbolic, I would say, the fact that we're sending like an investigator on this case because it shows like how invested we are in it. Like, and we're not going to pitch it. Like, we know he's here 100%. He's living in Italy. It's like, no, we don't know that. We're going to tell him, you know, we had to pick one place in the world. We think it's here. And I don't know that he's living here. But... The idea was not to land in Italy expecting to put handcuffs on Rufo. He had been off the Italian radar for years. So changing that dynamic was a crucial first step. Chris was being joined by Eric Runk a former Baltimore cop who heads the international arm of the Marshal Service. Eric is laid back and fashion forward, a guy who arrives at the airport in a gingham shirt with a pocket square and greeted his Italian counterparts in a salmon-colored designer blazer, something he knew they would appreciate. He told me close relationships are everything. A country like Italy doesn't have to hunt for someone like Rufo, it takes diplomacy to earn their support. The effort to engage the Italians was all supposed to have started much earlier, but had been interrupted. While in Europe tonight, they are confronting their first major outbreak, at least 219 cases in Italy. Tonight, 12 towns on lockdown and we're there. At the start of the pandemic, few places were hit as hard as Italy. We were planning to go to Italy last March of 2020 um, when we, we had you know, a lot of information. We wanted to go and meet with our Italian counterparts. We wanted to go in the field and the trip was planned and it was canceled. Then we tried to do it again November 2020. And once again, it was canceled. And I think what this is the fourth uh, try now Eric said he's always believed the Italians could give the case a big push forward. We plan to go over certain um, information that we feel that could lead to a possible identification of Rufo in Italy. What the marshals did not know was how the Italians would respond. The Rufo case was not splashy. It's decades old and the files hold precious little in the way of solid leads. But as with so many other avenues explored in this case, the marshals felt they had nothing to lose. We thank you very much for flying with us. Once again, we should be landing at just about a half an hour from now. Rome, the cradle of European civilization a nursery of world religion, the birthplace of the Renaissance. Is this somewhere where a bland, devious Italian-American grifter could blend in and settle down? Still in the grips of COVID, the marshals needed a special visa for this trip, so their sales pitch would have to connect in just a matter of days. After a gauntlet of nose swabs and rapid tests, they swiftly loaded into a van and got to work. They rolled straight for the headquarters of the Carbonieri, the national police force, to meet up with the head of the Italian fugitive squad, a man named Fabio Ottaviani. So he's the guy who knows how to find people there. Yeah, he'll be the guy, that, uh, he'll be our Tommy Lee Jones, as you can say, in Italy. Just like the guy in the classic movie, The Fugitive 
hard bitten and rough around the edges. Flood my office with calls. Well, Sheriff, I'd hate to see that happen, so I guess I'll take over your investigation. While Italy had become a new focus for the Rufo investigation, it was not the only direction the marshals were headed. An interview in suburban Virginia sent Chris and Danielle looking in another direction as well. This was the lead from private investigator Bill Kish, who died in 2018, but had once advised the marshals that Rufo was spotted in a casino at a Dominican Republic resort. The lead had been chased and dismissed until Danielle visited the home of Kish's daughter. There was a moment at the end of that Mm -hmm. where one of the people came out of the house and said, I just talked to Bill Kish's son. He knows where John is. Yeah. What happened next? Um, Well, we we called that person. We called his son. Um, I mean, and for a second, we stopped and we thought, could this really be real? Or like, it's not going to be real. You get that little bit of excitement that maybe there's something to it. Maybe he's going to give us like the Latin long where Rufo's at. So let's call him. Let's figure out what's going on. So we called Mr. Kish's son up and we asked, hey, I heard you might know where he's at. A few days later, I also connected with Kevin Kish, a New Yorker who revered his dad for his distinguished FBI career. Kish told me his father had always been baffled that the marshals had not descended on the Dominican resort and snapped Rufo up. And he thought he had this guy. I was in the office and dad was like, I can't believe these guys are so lazy. <laughs> when I was in the bureau, you know, someone tried to do something, he just jumped to it. Kevin Kish told me his father had known Rufo for years, even before Project Star. And he'd always been impressed with Rufo, especially for his mastery of computers. And so dad believed him, hmm. you know, because he knew him for so long, I guess, and they did, he knew the work that they did together. And he couldn't put these things together and, and come up with a criminal. So he thought he was just a victim. And so dad stood up for him. But just like Ed Reiner's, Judd Burstein, and so many others, Bill Kish joined a long list of people who came to understand that Rufo's real mastery was not computers, it was deception. When Rufo was allowed to drive himself down and disappeared, um, it, was, it was, again, a shock. And my father was really ticked off. Because Kevin said his father believed someone handed Rufo a get-out-of-jail-free card. It also seems very likely that he was given the pass to, to escape. If not even this was one more theory sprouting up from the strange seeds planted inside a Richmond courthouse so many years earlier, that day when prosecutors had inexplicably agreed to let Rufo self-report to prison. Kevin said his dad always wondered if the FBI thought his disappearance might somehow spare them embarrassment. By the way, they would be very embarrassing for it to come out that this guy is a criminal and worked for the U.S. government. In this scenario, Rufo had become an informant off the rails. What's your sense of what most likely scenario is? He's He's been sentenced to 17 years and then he's told he can report by himself. What happened there? <laughs> that I don't know, but my guess would be they, they, might, they may have a system that leads the country. I wasn't sure how to assess this theory, So many exotic explanations have already been offered for Rufo's escape. 
Did the Russians help him? Did the mob help him? Did he get a whisper from the FBI? The marshals have also had trouble digesting all these ideas. What they did accept was that this was as strange a fugitive case as had ever crossed their path. Chris and Danielle opted to put Kevin's theories aside and instead focused on the fresh information from Kevin about that Dominican resort. Danielle pulled out the old notes from the marshal who ran down the lead years earlier. We knew of the tip through the years. Um, we documented it. We had, we talked to the original investigators that were out there. I pulled all handwritten notes. Everything I can find about this tip, um, we pulled up. At first, it was just as Barry had remembered it. The marshals did go to the resort and found a guy there named John Russo. It was a couple and a husband, um, a wife, and their child. They were vetted. They were, they were interviewed. It, it was not Rufo. But then Danielle scanned the registry from the resort on the day the tip came in. She read carefully down the list of guests. Just looked at it again, because you can look at it five times, and it might mean nothing. And then you get one bit of information, and you look back at it again, and it might change your life. And you saw something. So we saw um, a name that was interesting. Um, Rufo had established several false identities that investigators knew about. I remembered when one day last year, Rufo's old assistant, Jody Bachman, told me about a bunch of names he had been using, how she would see them pop up on checks and on invoices. Bruce Gregory, John Peters. And you were men- mentioning Nitz. John Nitz. Well, Nitz, when I see it says alias Nitz, the first thing that came to my mind was Craig Nisnowitz, as where he got the idea to, for that fictitious name, the alias. A former CCS client who had nothing to do with the fraud scheme. Because they were clients of his. But I think John took his name from that, Nisnowitz, almost certain. It's just, where would you get nits from? Danielle remembered that alias, too. She did a double take when she re-examined the hotel registry from the Dominican resort. It may have just been a coincidence, but now there was a second reason to wonder if Rufo had in fact been there, living like a high roller. One of the names that was on it was John Itz, I-T-Z. And the reservation was only for one day, and it was in the amount of over $1,000. So I probably have looked through that Prior to this, I don't know, 20 times, it never stood out. After we had that phone call, um, myself and another investigator looked back through it and said, okay, this could be something. Rolling across Rome in an Interpol police van, Chris Lure watched the chiseled stone of thousand-year-old walls and pillars float by the window. We passed verdant countryside villas and then emerged back into a landscape of modern office buildings, eventually easing through the security barriers at the vast modern headquarters of the Carbonieri, Italy's national police force. After a gauntlet of temperature checks and metal detectors, 
we reached a set of glass doors etched with the acronym FAST, which stood for Fugitive Action Search Team. The head of FAST, Fabio Ottoviani, greeted us with cups of Italian coffee. For those who hear the name Fabio and think of the romance novel cover model with flowing locks, this is not that. This Fabio is a stocky man of middle age with a thick neck and a shaved head, a 30-year police veteran whose tours have included extremely dangerous anti-mafia postings and senior roles in the areas of counterterrorism and European cooperation. As we all took seats at the table in his Spartan office, Fabio's approach was both warm and blunt. The relationship with the Americans is crucially important, he said, but if John Rufo is in fact hiding in Italy, he won't be easy to find. Because there are a lot of people with the same name and surname in the side of Italy, born in the same years, so it's not... Easy. It makes it hard to find it. Yeah, actually, we carried out several checks to verify the presence of Gerufo, the recent presence of Gerufo in Italy, but, you know, no clue. I mean, no, any, nothing positive from our databases. So. Most challenging, he said, is that Rufo's everyman look is as commonplace in Italy as it is in New York. Uh, John Rufo has a standard face, okay, so a lot of people can resemble to John Rufo in Italy. But Fabio's mood was not entirely sour. A characteristic of fugitive hunters worldwide, it would seem, is the firm belief that any man can be caught. Uh, you've, done, you've done many fugitive cases. Uh, so yes, I had the opportunity to work on, uh, on several uh, major cases related to top, top fugitives belonging to Italian mafia. What, is the, what are the keys to finding Somebody who's gone on the run, what are the most important? Uh, you know, uh, you need to track everything about the fugitive, starting from something that can help you to find them, the family. Uh, yes, maybe this is a really an Italian point of view, but for instance, for us, they remain linked to their family, they remain linked to their territories. So you need to start from there to find... The Fabio told Chris, he had, in fact, done exactly what Chris was hoping. He had initiated a fresh review of the Rufo case. We're starting to analyze the case as a cold case. If Rufo is in Italy, Fabio said his continued freedom depends on both his aversion to risk and the quality of his forged papers. Forged documents are, you know, the, the basis of everything for a fugitive. Fabio said it would be difficult to pierce the shield of protection Rufo would have built up over two decades of life in a new identity. The only way is to, uh, is to stop him, maybe during a, a police check, by chance. In any case, a standard police officer would ask him to show his passport, his driver's license, if he showed a well-crafted forged document, even the 
okay, the police officer uh, surely uh, would check, would inquire the system. The system will give an, a, a negative response. Okay, thank you, sir. Bye. This is basically, you need to have a, a reason to, to get fingerprints from the person. In that case, the, the only possible way to identify a fugitive such as John Rufo uh, is to, to get his fingerprints. This is the only way. Yeah, if John Rufo was arrested in Europe or in Italy or in, in elsewhere and fingerprinted, yeah. would, would, it, would anybody know that he's wanted in the United States? Yes, of course. Yes, this is, uh, <laughs> yes. So that would be it for him. Over the course of several hours, Fabio began introducing Chris and Eric to a succession of senior national police figures, the head of the Financial Crimes Unit, the head of the Anti-Mafia Division, the head of the Narcotics Squad. Some were eager to dig into the details of the Rufo case. The head of Drug Enforcement, speaking with an interpreter, asked Eric if he had wanted posters they could distribute around the country. We provided 100 um, U.S. Marshal wanted posters, so it's a success no matter what. Italy, Italy is big, but not so much. Others were more skeptical, like this man who heads the anti-mafia section and also spoke with me through an interpreter. Did you make the um, uh, aging computerized aging? Yes, we have. That's, that's actually on the most wanted poster also, I believe. It's e very, dice che hanno fatto un poster anche con uh, la, la progressione age progression. Yes, it's so right now it would put him in his mid 60s. So anyway, we will we will look for uh, drugs now and for Mr. Rufo too, okay? <laughs> at the end of the day, Fabio joined the marshals for dinner at a trattoria on the road back towards Rome. Over pasta and Chianti, Fabio vowed to them he would work the case with fresh vigor. Fabio and his guys worked this case before. Um, they, yeah, they've done phenomenal work. And just like any fugitive case, after years go by, it, it dies out. So we're here because we just want maybe to, to bring it back into the light. As we loaded back into the van and drove back in the direction of Rome, I was uncertain. Had this journey been a success? Then I thought about the series of meetings, how every one of the senior national police officials, even the skeptical head of organized crime, held a thick file packed with information about John Rufo. Eric Runk told me a fuse had been lit. It put John Rufo literally in the forefront, um, I think, in the conversation, with, especially with people who can make things happen. Do you feel that too, Chris? Yeah, it's cool to hear you know, the, the colonel in charge to say, oh yeah, John Rufo, we're going to talk more about that. You know, it seems a priority for him, so that's pretty neat to, to hear firsthand. As we weaved past the Colosseum and through the center of this ancient city, the marshals seemed satisfied. If Rufo was hiding in Italy, his life was about to get a little less comfortable. This just puts it back on top. So everyone's talking about John Rufo, which is great. That's what we want. These are the people who make the decisions, um, the general, 
um, the colonel. They're the ones that, if, if you want things to happen in Italy, they're the ones that are going to make it happen. For an investigation that's made so little headway after so many years, the search for John Rufo suddenly seems to have sprung back to life. The marshals are doing fresh digging on that old tip about the Dominican Republic to see if he really was there using an alias. They also have renewed interest in the efforts by the Italians who have been doing their own digging. Whether John Rufo should be concerned about that, this many years after he vanished off the face of the earth, that depends on who you ask. Even a year after Rufo fled, Jeffrey Lichtman, his lawyer, famously said on 60 Minutes, he thought Rufo would never be caught. Because uh, from what I can see so far, he's smarter than the people looking for him. I asked Lichtman how he felt about it now, more than two decades later. Do I think they'll ever capture him? No, I don't think they'll ever capture John Rufo. And he had one more thought to add. I don't encourage people to jump bail and run away, but if you ask me if I'm happy that John Rufo is still gone, yes. I'm, I'm happy for him, I hope he's healthy, I hope he's doing okay. I hope he found some happiness wherever he is. And as I often think about this, if you want to disappear, it's not that hard, as long as you're willing to do what needs to be done to stay disappeared, which is you have to cut off everything. Cut off everybody in your life, never talk to anyone, never show up anywhere, and just disappear. And that's what John apparently did. Others don't feel nearly as charitable towards Rufo or to the achievement of besting U.S. law enforcement and the American justice system for the better part of two decades. On a recent trip back to Delaware, I stood with Barry Bowright on his dock overlooking a tidal Chesapeake Bay Creek. In retirement, he spends his mornings on a small fishing boat, letting his mind drift. And sometimes, he says, he thinks about the one that got away. At this point, if he had showed up for a sentence, he'd be out and a free man now, like Ed Reiner's. Did he win? He's in the lead. I don't think he's won yet, though. We'll see what happens. The only way he wins is if we never find him, and I think we're going to find him at some point. Of all the people waiting to see if John Rufo will ever resurface, None does so with as many swirling emotions as Linda. She told me emphatically she wants him found. But I wondered what she would do if one day he was captured after all these years. I think about that every day. Yeah. I'd like to go over all the mistakes we made in our marriage and know, is this why this happened? You know, and I'd want to tell him what we should have done how we should have lived if we were both on the same page and how sad that, you know, life could have been so much better without all that. She paused. Her daughter, Natalie, sat next to her on the couch. In a moment of contemplation, she seemed to be pondering the question more deeply. 
it's it's hard. Like if someone just dies, it's final. They died. But he just, just, I'll see you later. And I never saw him again. Like I would feel worse if I found, if they found him and he had a wife and kids. Like that would probably destroy me. She and Natalie sat together, quietly thumbing through old photos of a past life that now seemed so distant. They paused to study a photo taken at the CCS office Christmas party. Linda's co-workers had her hoisted up on a chair and the camera caught her in what looked like a moment of pure joy. Like, I go back to this picture and like, I don't know what it is about it that kind of like strikes me. But like, I just see like in your whole like face, like you're having so much fun and like you're happy, right? It was, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I feel bad though, because it's like, I never see you smile like that, really. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there's something that I keep holding inside. It's like a, it's like a scar, you know, you never forget it. You don't want to think about it every day, but it's kind of there. Yeah, I just feel that like, maybe one day there'll be some peace with it. Well, I have to make that peace whether he's found or not. Whether John Rufo can be captured is ultimately a question of time. I've been following Chris and Danielle on this search for nearly two years now, and I'm not naive about the challenge they face. In all likelihood, John Rufo has burrowed deep into a new identity. He may now be known, even well-known, as someone entirely different. But I also know that the Marshall's pursuit is relentless, that they need only one tiny piece, if it's the right piece, to solve this puzzle. They believe that piece could come from you. If you know someone who looks to be about 66 years old, a diminutive fellow with traces of a Brooklyn accent, he may still be balding, maybe in glasses, maybe making his living gambling or day trading. He may still be strumming the guitar. It's not a bad idea. He may still spin stories about his exploits for the government or may have no lingering connection at all to his murky past. But by now, he probably knows this. Chris and Danielle are looking for him. And like all the marshals that preceded them in this manhunt, they aim to find him. Is John Rufo catchable? Absolutely. I think so. I think time is on our side, if anything. We hope this will not be the end of this story. But now, the challenge belongs to you. Please be alert and contact the U.S. Marshals at their hotline, 1-877-WANTED-2, or by visiting www.usmarshals.gov backslash tips and let them know if you have seen this man. Thank you for listening. If you have any information that can help the U.S. Marshals find this man, call 1-877-WANTED-2. That's 1-877-926-9200. 
888-888-8332. Or send a tip from your phone through the U.S. Marshall app called USMS Tips. That's USMS Tips. And if you haven't already, follow this podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Let us know what you think with a rating and review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News Investigative Unit. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Field production by Alex Hosenball. Additional reporting by Kate Holland. Produced by Susie Liu and Kate Holland. Mixing and mastering by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Aaron Ferrer, Louis Millman, Leighton Schneider, Aaron Katursky, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohen, Chris Vlasto, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley, Matthew Mosk, and Liz Alessi are executive producers. I'm Sunny Hostin. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.